We would first like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners on the land on which we are recording today, the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Welcome to the Women in Wildlife podcast. You're joined by your co-hosts Eliza and Maddie, so get ready to delve into all things women, wildlife and gender equality in STEM. Welcome back to the second Women in Wildlife podcast. How are you feeling today, Eliza? Yeah, good. I think we've had pretty much every technical hurdle that we possibly could have to get here, so I hope that this is it and this is the final try but yeah I hope it's so true it's been a mission and a half to film this little intro but we made it we're here we're doing good so far exactly how was your day <laughs> today was really good 26 degrees out in the field can't complain no rain beautiful skies it was good how about you yeah an absolute dream I was very jealous uh, working from home wasn't too bad I could sit out in the sun but seeing your stories out in the field today in the sun I was very jealous yes, it was a beautiful day but also luxuries in working from home as we all know you get snacks whenever you want <laughs> exactly the absolute best <laughs> I love working from home if I could work from home full time but also go in the field I think that would be the dream combo oh I wish that would be so good oh so Today's episode is all about Dr. Phoebe. Um, she was such a great guest. I think me and Liz both got a hell of a lot out of this conversation and we both kind of came out of it very gobsmacked and just, yeah, just very insightful and she's just such an amazing woman and we're really lucky to have her on today. What did you think, Liz? Yeah, I kept catching both of our faces on the screen and we just had our jaws on the floor and yeah. yeah, we didn't really know that much about her before we came in, which I think was a really sort of good way um, to come in with a guest. We She did actually submit um, a, a social media written interview a few months ago. That was sort of the first um, that I'd heard of her and then I really liked what she posted, but obviously it's a really small sort of little snippet that we get on those social media little written interviews. Um, so yeah, obviously I did definitely know she was going to be interesting, but goodness we were yeah really blown away by her and um the contribution she's had in wildlife and conservation and yeah mm. all around the globe um sort of work that she's been doing in both marine and terrestrial uh, environment so I think yeah we both took a lot away from it so we're really keen to share that with you yeah I feel like she just dabbled in a bit of everything in wildlife and it was just yeah super super interesting I guess we better get into it before we talk about too much and spoil the whole episode so yeah we really hope you enjoyed today's episode and we can't wait to hear your feedback so let's get into it enjoy guys lucky enough to be joined by Dr Phoebe Mark. Phoebe is a wildlife conservation officer at Taronga Conservation Society Australia and manages the conservation recovery for the Australian aquatic species including platypus and marine turtles. Phoebe has a PhD in marine biology specializing in reproductive biology of rays but also has a special interest in combating illegal wildlife trade and promoting women in science and science communication. So welcome Phoebe. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for being here today, Phoebe. I think me and Eliza are both very interested in the marine um, world. And yeah, I'm super excited for this chat. So I guess, yeah, let's get into it. So 
Uh, first question we have is what was your journey like getting where you are today as in like jobs degrees and yeah how you got to where you are at the moment? Yeah well I think like most people I've met in this field we sort of always knew this is what we wanted to go into in a way so I didn't quite know how I was going to get there and I didn't quite realize the path I took was open to me um, but I knew I wanted to work with animals, wildlife, if I could work outdoors that would have been awesome so I always knew that I think from about five or six so you know all my assignments were on animals um, and particularly marine stuff. I think I was quite heavily influenced by we've got a, a little shack down in Kangaroo Island in off South Australia and we used to go there for lots of holidays so it's really inspired my whole childhood to to work out how I could get paid to spend my time in the ocean and with animals. Um, pretty much after uni I wasn't really good at chemistry or physics or those those types of sciences so I wasn't sure if science was what I wanted to do at uni uh, but I loved biology um, and for some reason because I loved it I, I did okay at it so I decided to go down that path. I did a Bachelor of Science Biodiversity and Conservation at Macquarie Uni they actually, I'm so old, embarrassing to say, they didn't even offer marine biology when I <laughs> enrolled at Macquarie Uni. Uh, so they had a Bachelor of Science Biodiversity and Conservation. So I did that. And then I ended up doing an honours in um, looking at genetic diversity between the East and West Coast populations of grey nurse shark. Uh, that was very early on um, when microsatellites were, you know, the, the big thing in, in genetic analysis. Um, and I was working at the aquarium at the time in Manly it used to be called Ocean World and I was the head curator looking after that population of grey nurse shark and that was what really inspired me to do the honours in that topic um, but then after honours I sort of did a I don't want to work in academia you know this is too too much trying to get the funding and the competition and I actually travelled for about two years straight just working on liverboard, diving boats. I got my dive master. Um, I did, I was a, worked at the snow for a season and I really just lived life for, for years and it was awesome. But at about 25, I decided that I probably should get back to it. And that's when I went back and did a PhD. So it was actually a total of, I think six years or, or, or so, and maybe even seven years before I went back and did a PhD. And I did that at Sydney Uni. Um, so it's a bit of a roundabout journey uh, to get there in the end, but um, I think having that time off, I would I would recommend maybe not the full seven years that I took, but I would recommend anybody um, wanting to sort of pursue a similar career to to take that time off and really um, like gain those physical qualifications too, like the diving and and um, yeah, just travel and get that life experience as well. Yeah, no, that's great, great advice. And definitely spending as much time with the animals that you're interested in in nature, I think is really invaluable and something you can't really learn in a classroom. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I feel like I can relate to that too because I, I, I went to go start my PhD last year and I just had no break in between study and um, going for like going to PhD. And I was like, I just can't keep going. Like I need to figure out why I'm doing this PhD and like find that like big passion. I feel like 
anyone that's doing a PhD or has done one, you need to be very passionate about. Yeah, and work doing. out what you don't want to do. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because mm. I, I dabbled in, I mean, I love science communication and I still I still really, you know, like to work quite heavily in that area. I think side by side with science. Um, but I, I sort of went down that path and I was writing sort of school age uh, programs, you know, about, about science for, for kids. Um, but I really missed the research side of it, actually. So it's like, this is really great and I love it, but I miss, you know, the science questions. So, yeah, it was working out how to get back to what I loved. Yeah, I feel like when you're doing other stuff and you start missing things you did in the past, you're kind of like, oh, maybe that's where I should yeah. be going. Or like, yeah, I really enjoyed that. That's something I should keep um, going into. Um, Just quickly, I do not know what micro satellite stuff is. So you, you uh, said you in your honours with grey sharks. Can you just quickly explain Yeah, that? I can. No idea. <laughs> All the geneticists listening are going to like roll their eyes because I'll probably murder it because it was so long ago. <laughs> no, that's um, fine. <laughs> but... So now, you know, there's SNPs and I'm not a geneticist and I don't work in genetics now, so I don't I don't know the current technology, but I do know back then the best way to study uh, genetic diversity and differences across populations and different haplotypes was looking at mitochondrial DNA and also yeah. microsatellite DNA. Um, but apparently I was talking to someone about that recently and they basically laughed in my face and they were like, <laughs> oh, my God, microsatellites, that was like over a decade ago, ha, ha, ha. And I, you know, sheepishly backed away um but it's just it's just looking at the difference in the um a certain section of of the dna code it, it, yeah, it's a right, similar okay. technology but it was just a certain part of the code cool awesome yeah, yeah i was like i have no idea what that is <laughs> <laughs> so returns i'm like mm, i don't know <laughs> yeah no yeah, I, I work with really geneticists cool. and it's such a specialized field and i think it mm -hmm can tell you so much um, about populations for conservation purposes, but yeah, it's definitely out of my depth these days. Yeah, I feel like um, eDNA is quite big at the moment too. Not, that's a whole nother conversation, but anyways. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've just started using it. The thing about eDNA though, and how we use it, is we send it off to the geneticists. So yes, true. we take the samples and they have narrowed it down so beautifully in terms of the simplicity of being able to take, like, take those samples. Um, I just, I was blown away. I mean, we do it for the platypus uh, work and we also look at macroinvertebrates using eDNA. But to be able to go to a stream or a creek and just take a litre of water and then send it off and then the magic of the labs comes back and it can tell you every single animal that lives in that river is just mind-blowing, honestly. That's like one of those, wow, science is cool moments. Like so amazing. Yeah, that's insane. It's so cool. I, I remember I was looking at even doing it in like even dirt, like um dry areas as well up in the little desert. So they're even going even further now and doing it in dry environments too, which is pretty cool as yeah, well. Yeah, I heard that as well. Yeah, they're crazy. soil. Science is crazy. <laughs> Amazing though. And sort of fast forwarding for a little bit from your honours, but um, can you tell us a little bit more about your PhD and sort of what, yeah, you were investigating and what you found? Yeah, so I was looking at Eastern Shovel Nose Rays. My PhD path is also a little bit, zigzaggy and I think that's probably good for people to know that you know sometimes you don't just land in an area and go yep this is it 100% so my PhD topic actually changed three times before I settled on it I initially got a uh, scholarship to go work with leopard seals in Antarctica which would have been amazing and I couldn't believe that I got the scholarship um, and I started it 
and the, I mean, you couldn't really make this stuff up, but a lot of the PhD was going to be made up of analysing some blood samples and some audio that was on a ship, an Argentinian ship that was coming back from Antarctica. My dog's wagging its tail. I don't know if you can hear okay. that. Sorry. <laughs> um, so this ship was coming back from Antarctica with all these blood samples and audio recordings that I was going to use, and the ship exploded um, about, I don't know, three months into the PhD. Um, and so they were like, okay, well, now you're going to have to scrap that. We can't use that. We're going to have to send you over to the Argentinian base. You can live there, uh, collect all your own samples. But just to let you know, there's only going to be four other people in the base. Uh, they're all men. None of them speak English. Um, and even though you're only going to be there for six to seven weeks, uh, be prepared to be there for nine months uh, because sometimes the uh, the runway for the airport freezes over and you can't get away. Oh, and by the way, the satellite phone is in a hut that's like a kilometre walk away. So uh, if you get in trouble or snowed in, you actually have no communication. All these horrible stories. Um, and this one person sort of trying to I think they were trying to scare me. I was like, make sure you sleep with your tranquilizer gun next to your bed just in case those men try anything. Anyway. I ended up talking to the uni about it and they were just like, absolutely no way can you go on that, you know, like WHS-wise. It was just too risky. So then I had to start all again thinking about uh, what I wanted to do. And then at the time uh, there was people working with Wobbegong sharks and I knew that, you know, I'd done my honours on sharks. I love sharks and rays. Uh, I thought, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll work. I'll work with them. And they were doing some really cool research around it's pretty pretty out there, but can we create an artificial shark uterus? So for in critically endangered species, can we mimic uh, the uterine environment, um, take fertilised embryos from sharks and put them into these artificial embryos and grow them up? So I don't know if you know, but so grain of shark have uh, interuterine cannibalism. Wow. And that's where, you know, you've got like a, you've got, a whole bunch of fertilized embryos in each uterus because they have two and the sort of the shark or the embryo that grows its teeth first and its hunting instinct first will actually turn around and eat all its siblings inside the uterus as well as any unfertilized ova and so they were hoping that they could take those fertilized animals out before they started eating each other so that was the concept I thought that was super cool really interested in uh, sort of captive breeding and how that can make an impact in conservation science. Um, but then we had to kill the sharks. Like we had to get them live and then we had to humanely, obviously. Um, but it was a really big lesson for me um, that everybody sort of has a line in the sand about what they can tolerate. So even though I really wanted to do that PhD, I was really interested in the science and the research. I just could not keep catching sharks and then killing them for the sake of research. And so that was a big lesson for me personally about where my line in the sand was um, and everyone's is different. So then my third topic, I had to go and, and how do I study sharks and rays without, you know, killing them for the purposes of science? Um, and we ended up coming across, we knew that Eastern Shovelnose rays were one of the highest bycatch rays in New South Wales. Um, 
and we knew that they were being bought on board fishing trawlers and that they were they were dying and they'd get sold at the fish market as well. So we thought, well, could we just use the dead bycatch to study these animals and that way they wouldn't have to die for the sake of my PhD. And so that's what we ended up doing. So we started, we looked at reproductive biology of the eastern shovelnose ray, which was unknown, as well as fishery impact. So was the um, fishery industry having an impact on eastern shovelnose rays? And it's one of those double-edged swords where you want you sort of want to come up out of the PhD saying, yes, it's got this detrimental impact. Let's make a difference. And sadly, the data showed that the trawling industry does not have a significant impact on the eastern shovelnose ray population in New South Wales, which is great for the eastern shovelnose ray. Uh, not so exciting for my research results. Um, but what was cool was that the reason that they're not so heavily impacted is because Sharks and rays tend to migrate out of deeper water when they're going to, or females when they're pupping or when they're about to give birth. Uh, so what was happening is the fishing trawler um, paths, they were taking up a lot of uh, eastern shovelnose rays, but it wasn't at those crucial reproductive points. So they weren't getting any pregnant females. They were mostly getting um, younger males. And so we used to, we found all these pupping bays, which was amazing. So like, 50 plus eastern shovelnose rays or just giving birth to these teeny tiny cute eastern shovelnose rays all up and down the New South Wales coast in really shallow water like uh, less than knee deep. Uh, so it was really interesting to be able to plot out the reproductive cycles of that animal uh, and spent a lot of time diving in on fishing trawlers which was also an interesting experience. I had to pay my way by sorting prawns to get on some of these fishing trawlers boats and three nights of no sleep and that was pretty pretty sleeping on the dirtiest mattresses you have ever seen that just stink like prawns um, but you know that was what I had to do to get my samples so you know it was an experience but the lesson the main lesson I learned from that is do not touch a big pile of prawns that has a numb ray in it because the entire pile gets electrified <laughs> yeah Hot tip if you're ever sorting prawns on a fishing trawler. Oh my gosh, that sounds insane. And yeah, huge curveballs at the beginning, like amazing opportunities, obviously a lot of disappointment as well. But um, yeah, really yeah. obviously very relevant to the industry with research, particularly in wildlife. Things don't all always go to plan, but you definitely Yeah, have and it's all a growing experience for everyone, learning learning about you and and what you want to do and you know if it's not for you then do something else don't be forced into something you don't want to do or I think if you do something that doesn't sit with you uh you you won't do well in it in the end like you'll end up probably leaving it or just giving it only half your effort yeah you've absolutely got to have a really good gut feeling about what you're doing and sort of what you had touched on with um, the line in the sand. I think that is really interesting. I think a lot of people do discuss this in terms of vet science. Like people do sort of steer clear um, often for that reason. But even if it's something that you do find really interesting and you're not necessarily, yeah, like against what's happening. But, yeah, it's really awesome that you're able to identify that. Yeah. well, And it's not like I have an issue with, you know, I, I went after my PhD and when I started my role at Taronga, I, um, worked in the hospital for six years you know so I completely understand the need for euthanasia and you know that some animals need to die and you know and the benefits that you can get from like post-death from animals so I worked my very first job at Taronga was a pathology assistant so I had like no pathology background whatsoever 
um, but I knew about anatomy and I was prepared to get my hands dirty and I just did necropsies on wildlife for about you know five years and I just learned so much about um, disease and processes and different types of animals and anatomy and it was it was a super cool experience um, but definitely one that you couldn't do if you were sort of queasy or, or had an issue with that which I don't I think I found it really cool actually. Yeah, it's so awesome to have so many different skills to be able to bring as well. And having that experience would have been really cool. Yeah, it was definitely. But and also, to yeah, I don't know, people wanting to work in the industry. It's, you know, you can't really be above anything. Like, you just kind of give it a go. Like I remember my first experience in the pathology room. I had to, like, turn a kangaroo on the necropsy table. And I completely forgot that kangaroos had really long tails. And as I turned the kangaroo, I had my mouth slightly open and the tail, which had been soaking in its own blood, just went straight into and across my mouth. <laughs> uh, they made a joke about how that's like, welcome to the job. Uh, yeah. Definitely relatable. I've recently <laughs> done my um, necropsy training. I'm doing my PhD in disease um, Yeah, in wombats. But yeah, it's definitely been a bit of a, a learning curve. So I can definitely relate to that. Yeah. Wait, what is necropsy again? Is that oh, what? it's like an autopsy? For some reason, instead of calling it an autopsy in the animal world, they call it a necropsy. Right. Okay. I was yeah. Like, I think that's what it is, but I'm just gonna double check. Yeah. Me not in the vet industry, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. No. I don't know why they they call it a necropsy. I was like, is that just an animal autopsy? Yeah, or it like, is. Putting yeah. some things together here. Cool. There we go. Right on the money. <laughs> Can you also tell us a bit about your um, involvement in the illegal wildlife trade and how you kind of went in down that interest and, yeah, what kind of led you to that area? It was a nice, I suppose, a segue from working in, in pathology at Toronto Wildlife Hospital because it really, I was working with a really great pathologist, uh, Dr Lydia Tong, and a great team down there and learned a lot about that concept of what you can learn from the dead. You know, it's not always just about watching behavior of animals, um, but what you can learn about an animal. Post-mortem is, is an incredible resource. And so I, I learned um, a few forensic techniques, you know, things like stabilized analysis, which I hadn't done before on different parts of the animal um, they were actually using to look at the nutrition to try and improve the diets of some of the animals in the zoo. Um, yeah, anyway, we had this massive resource of animals coming through. And I think people working in in biology or in any field that requires animals or wildlife should also really think about tapping into that resource because the amount of really unique and critically endangered species that um, you have access to through zoos and wildlife centres is, is an untapped resource for information. Um, so anyway, we got... The way that I got into the illegal wildlife trade project was we had um, Dr. Chris Shepherd, actually, who used to be the director of Traffic Southeast Asia, and he came to the zoo and he was explaining that one of the biggest issues that they have in illegal wildlife trade is this concept of animals being taken from the wild, but then fraudulently declared as captive bred so that they can pass through legal loopholes. So in some countries, 
um, there is quotas. So they'll be like, okay, you're allowed to trade. I'm just making up a number here. A hundred echidnas as long as they've been captive bred. So then the criminals will just go catch echidnas and then say, yeah, 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 they've been captive bred and just write some fraudulent documentation. And he was saying that there's just no scientific method to determine what actually has been bred in captivity and what has been taken from the wild. And at about the same time, I attended a presentation um, of Dr. Kate Brandis, who's actually now a collaborator on this project of illegal wildlife trade. And she was um, tracing migrating water birds across Australia for a project called the Feather Map. And she worked out that you could use trace elements in the feathers of birds to determine where they had grown that feather. So for example, a bird that might've grown a feather in the east coast of Australia, then migrated across to the west coast, molted that feather. She can analyze the elements in that feather and determine where it has come from, which is pretty cool. So I started thinking, well, if we can work out where animals have come from based on trace elements in things like feathers, why couldn't we work out where an animal has come from in the illegal or the trade of animals based on elements in their keratin? Um, we thought, well, why don't we just do a pilot study and see if it's got any merit? And we took 24 captive bred echidnas. Um, also one advantage of working at a zoo is you have access to, to animals and quills can fall out, but they can also just be cut like fingernails or hair. So it's non-invasive and non-painful for the echidnas. And obviously we get lots of wild echidnas coming through the rehab center as well. So then we were able to take quill samples from wild echidnas. And we compared the elemental signatures in animals that have been feeding in the wild with animals that have been feeding in captivity. And we managed to get about a 98% accuracy rate for determining where that animal had come from and comparing captive versus wild. So we're like, oh, wow, this has got some merit. Um, we spoke to Traffic who said, we would love to see if you can do the same types of studies on the three most traffic species in Southeast Asia, which at the time and still probably are, are the pangolin, um, the red-vented cockatoo and the Palawan forest turtle. Uh, so poor me had to fly over to Palawan and go hunting for pangolin, forest turtles and um, cockatoos. Um, it was awesome. But we did, we ended up getting our samples and we ended up bringing them back to the labs here and analysing them. And in fact, we did find, we had issues with sample size. As you can imagine, it's not very easy finding a pangolin in the Palawan jungle. Um, but for the animals that we did get and the sample sizes that were substantial, we did see that we could get pretty high accuracy in determining not just wild versus captive provenance, because for some we didn't have captive, um, but then we looked at differences between wild location too. So can we tell an animal that is from one side of the island versus the other? And we're showing that you can determine that using elemental analysis, which is amazing. And then um, and then this then, snow once we published on that, it sort of snowballed and the federal government approached us and said, we really want to know if um, the reptiles that are being smuggled out of Australia are being captive bred in someone's backyard. Um, or if they're being taken from the wild. 
uh, can you use your science to help us out? And so for the last, not very long, for like in, just in 2023, we've actually been assisting the federal government using our science to fight crime, which is so cool because tangible conservation impact in using science to make a difference is just where it's at, isn't it? Like, I mean, that's just where, it, what, what, well, for me, it's always what I wanted to do. So it's been a really cool experience is is using this small idea back in 2016 to now be, you know, writing reports for the federal government. Um, and in fact, they just made an arrest last week and were able to get the guy 22 accounts um, of smuggling wizards. So yay, science. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I don't have anything to say. That's actually amazing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is. Contribution. It's been, uh, it's been a really uh, great experience, really rewarding. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely changed the game really in the wildlife trade. We can globalize that and, um, yeah, really track it. That would, yeah. I think the idea is is that what what we were hoping initially is that we could come up with a generic tool, Mm -hmm. you know, that could be used on scales, quills, feathers, fur. Um, But what we're finding is, in fact, the models that we run it through have to be pretty species specific. Um, which makes sense. I mean, keratin is so different how animals metabolize elements, you know, the whole thing. So um, so we've got our models for like shinglebacks, blue tongues, and some of those really heavily trafficked native species. Um, and now really the world is our oyster in terms of target species. We're talking with the feds a lot about marine species now too, which works so well because of you know my background and, and other other collaborators in the team are also marine scientists. So Things like sea cucumber and seahorse and coral, all these things are being taken from the wild and often uh, under the guise of being, you know, propagated or, or captive, captive bred or grown. Uh, so it'd be interesting to see if we can test it on marine species, but yeah, really we can test it on whatever species we want now. And and really knuckling uh, down on the wild versus wild. So we know captive versus wild works and that's primarily because the diet's so different um so for the wild versus wild to work the diets would have to be quite different in different locations which they often are Um, but yeah it's exciting to see where that one goes and particularly because eventually return to the wild would be the ultimate goal you know so all these animals are seized um they're brought in and there's just too many to be able to rehome uh, successfully um, so if we can determine where these animals are from and then we can clear them from any disease to be able to return them back to the wild would be such a, a great outcome it's amazing it's such a good outcome um, I know you said that they you've already made it an arrest or the federal government has is it um, something that's going to be integrate integrated like soon or is it more just like a pilot program kind of using it yeah, so at the moment it's very much a trial, you yeah. know. So I don't think we're ever going to be um, locking people up purely based on mm-hmm. that one tool. Uh, the way that we talk about it is a you know, tool in the tool belt, and it's actually it's more um, it's intelligence that goes towards an impact statement. So you know, I'm, I'm only learning about how this all works, but apparently they put to when they, you know, go to the courts, they put together a big impact statement and all the evidence is presented. And so our results, uh, you know, a piece of evidence within that impact statement, which then the judge or whoever it is makes that decision on, on what happens to that person or whether they're guilty or not. 
Um, so yeah, so as it's only been happening, yeah, for a few months now, and it is under this sort of field trial basis. So the hope is, is that this will just continue on uh, with the federal government, you know, moving forward forever. I mean, if it helps um, these people stop doing what they're doing, you know, we, we will obviously provide that um, for as long as we can. So yeah, fingers crossed, you know, we need to obviously get some resources. We're currently at the moment providing all this, doing all the scanning um, and all the report writing all for free because um, it's such a great um, example. You know, it's, it's really good for us to be able to use it in a real world situation, but hopefully if they see the benefit of it moving forward, then yeah, we can start getting some actual resources and, and fees for those types of things. Do you reckon this will be like your main project moving forward sort of for the foreseeable future? Yeah, I mean, the best bit about my job is it's so diverse, uh, but it's also the hardest bit about my job because I get so passionate about these projects that are so different and I can't, I just want to have one of me for all of them. You know, the other project that's taking up a lot of my brain space and attention and time at the moment is what, platypus recovery um, and Taronga's country. They're building these huge facilities and we're doing translocations and it's amazing um but yeah I really need two of me I need a platypus Phoebe and I need a legal wildlife trade Phoebe so I, I do want to continue doing all the different projects um but yeah as each project grows I think it's more about bringing in new people so you know maybe we bring in an extra you know part-time staff person to look after the illegal wildlife trade stuff with me as well as you know platypus stuff as opposed to just taking on more and more cool projects and growing them more and more um, just for me. We just need to increase the teams. I think. You've obviously had so many amazing experiences, which obviously we've heard a little bit about so far, but have you had sort of a favourite um, experience that you can pinpoint today? Well, I, ha I have had real lots of amazing experiences. <laughs> um, but, I mean, the one that we spoke about, just briefly before going to Palawan and trying to find Pangolin in the jungle was such an amazing experience. It was that, you know, when you're young, and I don't know if you guys were the same, but, you know, you read National Geographic and you're like, oh, my gosh, that field science looks so fun and how do you do that? I really felt like a real field scientist when I was doing that because they had, um, the team was huge. So, yeah. I mean, Palawan is so beautiful, uh, but there is some risk there as well. And so I had to have eight military armed guards with semi-automatic guns. Like, you know, huge, like these huge guns. I've never seen anything like it, you know, being from Australia. So I had eight of them all in full military garb escorting me into the jungle with a journalist and two ex-poachers with their ex-poaching dogs. So this organisation that I got this opportunity um, to go into the jungle was through the Katala Foundation, which is a locally run conservation foundation in Palawan in the Philippines. And, and they were amazing to work with. And I couldn't have gone into some of these places without their help. Um, and they also do this amazing thing where instead of just saying to poachers, you know, what you're doing is bad, go to jail. They say, hey, you've got some amazing skills at finding wildlife. We will pay you more than you would get for a pangolin to work for us as a tracker. 
they also provide accommodation and you know a, a, often it's like a patch of jungle that you are responsible for conserving this patch um and i just thought that was amazing because you know a lot of the time with illegal wildlife trade and trying to stop it you know you're really impacting sometimes people that are just trying to feed their family you know they're just not the people that really should be going to jail but it's the people that are much much higher higher up than that and so instead of just taking away their livelihood they're offering an alternate livelihood which i think is a really important way to combat illegal wildlife trade anyway so we got into this jungle with this team of these dogs and these trackers and these military guards and you know that there's no path in the jungle they all just had to machete their way through um, you know, at night, they would literally just, I was just so in awe of, you know, the skills. They just make like a, a raised bed just to sleep in in about half an hour. And here I am sweating, putting up my tent like an idiot. Uh, I just felt so um, inadequate, I think, when I was trying to work through the jungle. But yeah, such an experience. And then we did after about 10 days of being in the jungle, like just eating fish straight out of the river. Um, we found a mother pangolin with a baby and it was baby pangolins sit on the back of the mother's um, sort of base of the tail. Um, that was a pretty amazing moment, um, but definitely catch per unit effort for pangolin is huge. So, you know, 10 people, 10 days and one and a half pangolin that's still a super cool experience. That sounds so cool. Yeah, I think anyone in this industry would think that's such an incredible experience. So very jealous. <laughs> it was. It was, so yeah, cool. amazing. Like vipers and I don't know, it was just, yeah, awesome. That's insane. But I think oh, with right. that too, the lesson is like working with local community and local conservation organisations is key mm. for doing work overseas. Like you can't just go in and you know, you, you really need to work with local community. So that was very important. Yeah, and I guess that kind of highlights a, um, a bit of networking as well and having those connections and you can't just rock up to some foreign country and expect to have that service. Like, you know, you can't, you, yeah, yeah, people sometimes think they're entitled because they're scientists that they can just go in and do whatever they want. But, Absolutely. you know, people are working. And, in, and like the Indigenous permission as well. You know, that was really big there. We had to go in and we had to sit and have lunch with the, you know, each area had the sort of chief equivalent and they needed to grant permission. You had to explain what you would be doing with the animals. And, um, yeah, so if you want to do it respectfully and right, yeah, work with local communities. Yeah, definitely. Um, I know you touched on kind of briefly about funding um, with your current project, but have you had any troubles with funding and how did you kind of overcome that with your research or even like juggling jobs and PhD like have you had any challenges with that and yeah how did you overcome that if you did yeah I think it's always going to be hard mm -hmm. uh the funding struggle I chose not to be a full-time academic and that was a huge component of it is I don't want to have to worry every three years about am I going to have money to continue my work? Um, and I found that was seemed to be a really big stressor for academics. Whereas if you work somewhere like Taronga or government organisation, you know, you have your salary, 
obviously a lot of our projects are externally funded and we do have to write grants and funding applications multiple times a year to keep a lot of that work going but it's not as stressful on a personal level because at the end of the day if we're not successful with a grant I still get paid whereas I think in a lot of research projects sometimes that's not the case and if you don't get that funding you don't have a job which would be really stressful um, so working for government is a way of reducing that. Um, I also think funding, I find that the, the greater the collaboration, the more partnership you have with the more reputable organisations, the more likely you are. So a lot of the time when we have some projects, you know, I find the more partners we can get, you know, some six, seven huge industry partners you know, you, you're more reputable people think the chance of success is higher. So that would be my advice on, on a workaround of, you know, what I've learned about successful grants versus not is, yeah, that, that networking element, that stakeholder management, if you can convince other people that it's beneficial to them to be involved in your project, that really helps with successful funding. Yeah, absolutely. And I think so much of so many of us do this like work in the industry because we are passionate about it and we love it but like the most important thing is that we can eat and we do have somewhere to live so sort of being able to separate those two things and yeah be able to go home with actual food on the table is obviously very important um oh, you mentioned phd sorry but yeah. that that during a phd is just so difficult i just can't believe they expect people to live to live like that but it's yeah. really really tough Absolutely. And it's definitely something we don't talk about enough. I think there's sort of that guilt, I think, particularly in this industry that we are supposed to do it for the love. But yeah, there's obviously needs outside of that as well. And I don't really think it is spoken about it enough. So yeah, thank you for sharing all of that. You did mention um, in your social media interview that we actually, for anyone who hasn't seen that, we did feature Phoebe on our page um, a couple of months ago. And in that interview, you did mention that you do have a passion for promoting women in science. Are you able to run us through this a little bit and sort of what drives your interest in this area? Yes, definitely. Um, so I suppose, and I alluded to it a bit before, is I knew I always wanted to work with animals and in wildlife and outdoors if I could, but I pretty much didn't think science was that pathway. I just thought, well, if I'm not that good at chemistry and physics, you know, there seemed to be very much a certain type of person when I was a child that, you know, went into that typical science realm, um, a lot of it men older men lab coats you know working in a chemistry lab that type of thing um so I sort of always thought well maybe I can go into ecotourism that's sort of the way around it and I feel like that was such a missed opportunity and, and I really want girls that were like me back then to know that you don't have to fit a mold to be a scientist um anyone like science is open to everyone and it's not just an old man in a lab coat but it is you know women in a scuba suit and it's also you know women doing nutrition you know science is such a broad uh, industry and I think it should be pushed more to the forefront so that young Phoebe's and, and you know little potential scientists that love animals uh, can grow up knowing that science is a really rewarding pathway 
to get into that field um, and that you don't have to be really great at physics or chemistry or you don't have to fit that mold of you know I remember feeling tremendously guilty because I didn't go to titration club at lunch because I really enjoyed hanging out with my friends and that you don't have to be the titration club person to do science and that science is for everyone and in fact diversity is I think is what's so important to solving problems in science because if you just have the same people looking at the same problems with the same skill set and point of view you're never going to make those big moments you need people from different backgrounds and you know with different interests and different skill sets to look at these problems from all different perspectives and point of view to solve these bigger problems I think I mean I think that the illegal wildlife trade example is is a really good one you know the tool that we use is actually a mining tool um and not often do you know the paths cross of conservation and sort of hardcore forensic science but because we had all these different people with different points of view looking at the same problem we came up with a solution that might not otherwise have been solved and saying that the illegal wildlife trade team from Toronto is all women so yay <laughs> Um, so yeah I just really want to promote that science isn't a field to be scared of it's not just for a certain set of people it's for everyone and it's super rewarding yeah I think that's really important to highlight because even when I was a bit younger like I didn't get top grades at school and I was kind of like oh how am I going to go at uni or this sort of stuff so I think yeah just explaining how accessible science can be and you don't have to be the smartest in the class to be able to go where you want to go and there's so many avenues to go down like I'm currently in the contaminated land space so um yeah it just shows that that's such a flexible pathway and yeah so many different people can end up there and it's good to highlight that if you want to get there you can get there just you're just going to keep you know put the effort in and you, you'll make you may, you'll make where you want to go kind of thing that's right I think in that imposter syndrome that everybody has the best thing that ever happened for me was you know, there was a whole group of these women. So I did the Superstars of STEM program. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's an excellent program. And they had sort of 60 women who I looked at as, you know, the leading scientists in STEM. And they all, they said, oh, everyone close your eyes, um, you know, put your hand up if you if you feel like you're an imposter, like you shouldn't be here or that when you're at work, you feel like you shouldn't be there. And then they got everyone to open their eyes and the whole room had their hands up. And these women were, you know, chief scientists and CEOs of amazing industry and I just thought okay everybody feels like that so just keep going we're all just humans we're all just trying to solve problems you know it's actually passion that gets you further than being the best in the room I think 100% I think yeah passion and enthusiasm just love for what you're doing takes you so much further than potentially you know being the smartest yeah um, I know you mentioned briefly before we started recording that you have kids as well. Um, how did you make that decision while struggling your career and how did you find having kids within this industry? Yeah, um, it's a tough question. You know, there's a whole background around, you know, do men get asked that question? You know, do dads ever get asked, like, do you, how do you deal with working as a man and having children? Um but but we do. Women 
on the majority take the primary share of raising children and domestic duties and, and even if we don't like it that's just how society has that's the plate we've got on it is changing and it's not all women it's not all men but I think on the majority um, we take the lion's share of that child rearing I got pregnant during my PhD um, and it was a race to the end so my PhD was due in December and my son was due in September <laughs> and so I was just writing and writing and writing and like waiting um, you know see which one was going to happen first um, luckily he slept really well and I managed to get the PhD in and, and it was fine um, I have found as a working and now working single mother as well that COVID completely has, ha has had some horrible consequences but one consequence for working parents is this flexibility that's come from it and it's made such a difference to being able to have that eternal juggle you know they always say women are expected to work like they don't have children and mother like they don't have a job and I, you know it's so true but because of COVID and flexible working I feel it's much easier now and I look back at my mum you know who was director of research for somewhere um, and raising me and you know, it was like you had to work eight till eight till six, and then whatever was left over at the end of the day was for doing everything else. But now there's that much more flexible approach to being who you are outside of work and also getting your work done. And, you know, I just think it's a much better way forward. And I actually think women will fly now because we have. And it's not, it's not in all workplaces, and I understand that, and it might be a long process for some workplaces and not all jobs can do it, you know, and we work with lots of keepers and keepers cannot work from home, you know, they, you know, maybe one day a month, but, you know, they have to feed animals. So I understand, but as like a research scientist position where you are just sitting in front of a computer for most of the time, I have found that flexible work arrangement has just meant that we have so much more opportunity to be able to not be doing everything rushed and badly but being able to plan our weeks and our months so that we can get everything done I think um yeah it's really important that we keep heading down the pathway where women shouldn't have to make decisions between kids and career and they could have both and it not be a struggle or an issue or a hard decision to make like it should be an accessible decision just as males do like they don't second guess having kids or career like some some males do so not to um, discriminate against but in general yeah that that decision isn't really thought as thoroughly as it is for women to think that through so yeah and like I'm not you know ARC applications you know why have you had a break in your publishing you know it's like well because we're having to raise children and it fell on us like it, it does fall on the women and I just I don't think those things should be taken yeah I just think it should be looked at more holistically um, and I think it actually helps me at work it makes me a better person at work because now this is just me like my identity is just one it's not work Phoebe and home Phoebe it's just Phoebe you know and, and I think that I think that actually helps me at my work because I will do work at night or on a weekend or whenever I can because it's all just about getting everything done just yeah particularly in this field I guess there's a lot of field work involved and time away and I think that 
particularly does weigh into it as well and what we can do um like especially at those early stages when obviously the baby is very dependent on you as a female um so yeah I definitely think that is something to consider and particularly at my um, where I'm doing my PhD at uni I've noticed quite a lot in the academics sort of the differences between men and women and sort of that time commitment that you know the uh, female um, supervisors and things they do have to go home you know they constantly are referring to having to go home you know for things for the kids and I haven't noticed that at all really in the male counterparts and hopefully actually no one's listening from my uni but there is a particular you know they're actual like academic couples and it definitely um you know the male is always traveling and able to lecture overseas whereas the female you don't really hear that happening as much so I think that's definitely something to highlight that yeah it's still a huge uh, gender imbalance particularly within this industry I think it is and that time away is is really difficult particularly when the the children are young and you know sometimes you hear of those magical families where you know they just take everyone away and they go to you know Namibia and the babies are there and you know it's just a, a working family but I think that's really what it needs to be is is you have to have a really supportive partner I think if, if you want to be and I'm going to start getting all feminist on you but I did I did hear this thing and it said you either need a really supportive partner or no partner at all if you want to succeed in a career as a woman because you can't you, you can't do it all. And so if you do want to go in the field for a week at a time, somebody needs to pick up the slack. Um, so, yeah, that, it is just the way it is, um, unfortunately. Um, and I think it'll, it, it will change. I think there's more awareness coming into it and I think once again because of that COVID flexibility people's lives have seeped into the workplace and people are more aware of what everyone's juggling um, but it will eternally be a problem I think for, for a long time to come. Yeah I think um, it's kind of steering away more from work-life balance and it's just life now like it's, yeah. just, it's just life and that's yeah. is what it is and you just gotta work your way through it and yeah having that flexibility as you said is really advantageous and something that a lot of workplaces are taking up now because they've realized how how much how better it is for yeah especially working mums to um work around that with their kids but yeah thank you so much for joining us today Phoebe we had such a great chat I've learned so much today and I'm so incredibly just intrigued by everything you've done in the research you're currently doing now in the um trade industry I think it's just yeah such integral research and really interesting to see how we can work with yeah the federal government and science can make a really big change in such a small way as well which is really really cool thank you for having me it's been awesome having a chat today and yeah I look forward to listening to the the whole podcast <laughs>Thanks so much for listening, guys. We hope you got just as much out of today's chat with Phoebe as we did. Our links to our resources and our email are in our show notes. So please don't hesitate to reach out if you have any queries or questions. If not, um, we'll hope to have our next episode launching at the end of the month. So keep your eyes peeled for that on our socials. Thanks, guys.